Hey, all, you have found your way back to the perilous realms, and I am your host, Paul Lytle. Um, we are uh, we are we are trucking right along through the hallowing of ground, and I am I'm actually setting up a a, a time on on Twitch. Uh, it, it should be it should be if I don't need to push it back again, and I did have to push it back a little bit because of my uh, excitement with COVID. Uh, by the by the way, you know for those who. Uh, who did listen last week? I am, I am, I, I'm feeling much better. I'm, I'm still, uh, you know, like a, a little more worn out than I would like, but um, uh, I'm, I'm uh, essentially healed at this point, and so I am um, very happy, uh, very happy to have uh, done that. But uh, I did have to push back this. Uh, but on the 23rd on Twitch, Twitch.tv/technofunkboy, we should be recording the first major section of the new novel, The Dark. And light, and uh, and so this is going to be a, a recording of I think it's the first five chapters, uh, which will be which will be very very cool. And so it, I'd love for you to join me there. We um, the other big thing that ha- that has happened is that the new uh, the new album is out, and uh, and so I uh, the, the well the music that you've heard on this podcast is is all of my original work. A lot of it comes from the soundtrack for for Dice and Dreary, which is uh, which, which is an actual play podcast uh, that features the same characters in this book. But um, uh, the new the new section is out, and it is a double album called "The Dragon and the Witch." And so um, I, I'm I'm sure as we go forward, uh, you'll, you'll be hearing some more tracks from from this set, but if you if you are on Spotify or Amazon Music or Apple or whatever the case may be, you can find Techno Funk Boy there, and I have quite a few quite a few albums out, a lot of music out, and so if you if if you dig the the stuff you hear on here, um, uh, you will find all of that music uh, out on uh, on the streaming or purchasing platform of your choice, but. For right now, let's get into this. So, yeah, like our heroes have have hatched a plan, and uh, the the rest of the town is getting involved in the vampire hunt, and they are now splitting into teams in order to to search the houses uh, to try to try to uh, uh, to to get Fortosio's location. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Wasson, who was the boy that Fortosio um, recruited to help him, and uh, is um, is slowly being enthralled by the vampire, is uh, is starting to figure out that things are not quite right, and Fortosio is concerned that he will have to kill the family in the very very near future. That is where we left off, and that is where we will pick up in the Hallowing of Ground. The search began before dark, and the teams were hurrying as much as they could to make good ground before night fell. They already carried lanterns and torches, despite the sunlight that still dominated the sky. 
and the children and most of the women were already shuffled into the church for protection. Of the men, only Feathers was not on patrol, since he was cooking dinner for everyone in the church, food that Idra was running herself ragged, ferrying across the street to the church and back again. Several had volunteered to take this duty, but the young girl was as fierce and determined as any in town, and there would be no denying her this opportunity to help that night. The plans were not well known, but everyone obviously knew something was happening, and there was no confusion about what it was. The town was hunting vampires. The teams were large, sometimes five people, but never less than three. The torches were for basements that did not have any light source. That was the real danger, the basements. With the sun still in the sky, most of the living area in the homes at least had some open windows, or windows that could be easily open, making it downright bright inside. But getting a good look into that basement, especially when their eyes were accustomed to the light, was when Fortosio had a chance. For that, Crethen had taught them an old pirate trick he'd picked up in a book once. Keep one eye closed when outside, and it would be ready once darkness came. That one eye remained attuned to the darkness, so when it was finally opened in the darkness of the basement, the low light before it was more than enough. So on top of the sight of so many men running around the streets in daylight with torches, they also were all holding a hand over one eye. It was a rather ridiculous sight, but the fear was too great to allow anyone to laugh quite yet. They would, one day. Probably in those same stories they told their kids and grandchildren about fighting with the vampire hunters. They would place a hand over the eye and frolic with the children in impromptu dances, but the actual event was never so light-hearted as the remembrance of victory. Assuming that story would be told, of course, they had to be victorious first. They stayed together, checking one block at a time and not moving on until the team was ready. But there were a lot of houses to go through, and not a lot of time. From closer to the center of town, standing right next to the far edge of the church grounds where the graveyard gave way to the first row of houses, Crethen shook his head. How much time? he asked Mirella. She looked up at the sun, and it wasn't a long way off the horizon to look. Maybe an hour. It's time. Crethen turned and headed back toward the town hall, but soon he saw Sprocket rehurrying toward him. We ready? he asked simply. About to let it go, Sprocket nodded. How long? The gnome furrowed his brow. Interesting. Well, let me take let me take the incline into account. I would need the length, of course, and the volume of each component. How long? Crethen asked a bit more firmly. Five minutes? Sprocket said, somewhat as a question. Then we need to roll. He nodded. The gnome went back the way he came. Crethen hurried back calling out, Odwin. The constable was a little ways down one of the streets, acting as a liaison between the searchers and the vampire hunters near the graveyard. At the call of his name, he turned and hurried back. We're running out of light, he said. We're not going to have enough time. Are we going to finish this in the dark? Won't be necessary. Call everyone back. Wait, what? Crethen was speaking much more loudly than normal, but the look on Mirella's face told the constable not to question it. 
We figured it out, how the vampire got out of the graveyard. It couldn't go up because of the holy water, but it could dig across. It dug horizontally. Well, we know that. We couldn't find its exit because it didn't climb out of the ground. I think it made its way into one of the houses right here closest to its grave and found a basement instead. Odwin's mouth was agape, his eyes wide. Suddenly he jumped in action. Everyone, everyone, out now, we're coming back here. We're going to search the houses here closest to the town square. I need everyone here right now. Mirella bit her lip. This had better work. Suddenly there was a commotion behind him, and the two swung around, startled. There was a woman coming up the road quickly, her wails loud and her movements filled with more fear than anything. Help, help, she said, running as fast as she could. Ma? said one of the young men in the search party. He was hurrying back to the graveyard, falling in line with the others, when the cries of his mother caught his attention. He was twenty in years, if that, barely a start to a beard on his face. He was lanky and tall, and he took long steps forward to meet the woman. It's Wasson, she said, desperate for help. I can't find him. Crethen, Mirella said, poking him hurriedly. Can you see it? She was looking down the street, but whatever had caught her attention was outside his range of sight. He shook his head. She reported, The fountain has water in it. Everyone here now, Crethen boomed, because their real plan, the one they had shared with no one except among the three of them, had begun. 13. The search had not happened to actually find Fortosio. More than likely, its coffin would not be in one of the remote houses. Actually, the Three Hundreds believed that it had never moved the coffin at all, and that it remained in its grave to this very moment. Once they realized that Fortosio had tunneled its way out of the graveyard, and likely into one of the basements nearby, it made more sense that he just left the tunnel in place, rather than risk transporting the coffin before it was ready to leave town. There was always a chance it did, in fact, move it, and if the searchers had come across it, all the better. But the point was to make sure the vampire was paying attention. Then the call for everyone to move in tight to the place Crethen believed the vampire to be wasn't to search those houses either. It was to make sure the vampire moved. Because if the vampire moved, then they could channel it to where they wanted it to go. When the call was made, Fortosio, watching from just within Wasson's house, the boy currently downstairs helping him with his spell, was so close to being finished, grew wide-eyed. It wouldn't be long before they were discovered now, and then the boy's cursed mother showed up. This would be the first house they searched because of that blasted woman. The vampire went into a panic, thrashing about him, wondering whether to finish the magic or hide. He burst downstairs where Wasson was moving far too slowly. The spell would take at least a few more minutes, and it did not have that long. It licked its long dead lips and quivered, just to hide. It knew that is what it needed to do, by time. Once the night fell, it would have more power to fight. Once night came, it would set about its revenge. And so it did what it always did when moving around town. With the command of, keep working, it turned into mist and dove into the rusty pipe in the corner of the basement. The pipe that connected the vampire to every other house in the town without needing to go outside at all. 
the appearance of the mother forced what came next down one particular path, but the hunters could not know which path that was quite yet. If she had not shown up, Fortosio would likely have finished the spell himself before seeking shelter in the pipe, and thus not been in place when the water came. But it also would be trapped in that house with an hour of daylight still left, and the resulting confrontation would have taken a different turn. The water was in fact a lot faster than Sprocket had anticipated, not leaving a lot of margin for error. Sprocket had run to the cistern and hit the lights, notifying Belsith at the top of the hill to open the gate and let the water come. The boy already had his hand on the levers, and he pulled them open with a grunt. The flow of water into the pipe became a rumble before him. Everything was open as much as it could be, and the water roared down the hill in a violent blast. The cistern was massive, but the pipes leading the town were low to the ground, so they started filling almost as soon as the water started filling the cavern. At first, there was nothing more than a trickle on the fountain. A pinhole farther down began leaking a little, but then the pressure began to mount, and that leak turned into a tiny stream of water, shooting into the air several feet. The fountain was beginning to flow, not as originally intended, but more or less in an upward direction. The pipes across town were filling up, and the water was flowing freely through the streets, starting from the square and southward as the town had expanded along the riverbed. And as the pipes filled with water, they were no longer able to hold anything else, even mist. Rusted holes all around the vampire hunters began spewing water, shooting it high into the air and causing an artificial rain in the area around them. The townspeople stopped and gasped at this, astonished at what was happening. There in the red light of the waning sun, the pipes had come alive and the people didn't have the foggiest clue as to why. Water. One of two things would happen. Fortosio would be vomited out of a pipe in the street into daylight, which would be preferable, or it would find itself in a far house, a long way from its coffin and home. Yes, night was coming, but they would know where it was, or close enough, and the people were ready. It would have to destroy everyone to get back to his coffin. Somewhere, the vampire was being forced through a pipe by a flood of rushing water, and it would emerge soon. Mist. Crethen breathed deeply and then looked up. Berggren was in the air, watching. Gizmo was beginning to bark. He had something. They were on the move now, chasing. And Crethen was pretty sure they were going to find the stone beast. Be warned. The Dice and Dreary podcast is not for the faint of heart. It is an actual play horror RPG podcast with a thrilling score and chilling sound design. If you are intrigued by the supernatural and excited by rolling dice, then follow me to DiceAndDreary.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 14. Plans rarely go perfectly, but some parts of the plan were admittedly anyone's guess. Where Fortosio would emerge, for example, they could not know. Another of the unknown elements was what Gizmo would pick up. The Mastiff had gotten a good whiff of Fortosio, as well as a good mouthful of the creature, the night before. That being said, he wasn't the best tracker. 
with the added disadvantage of trying to follow a moving mist that may or may not give off a scent from within a pipe. It was something they'd never tried to test, not really having any way to do so, so they only hoped for the best. There were backup plans in case that didn't work, but they were not confident in them. But it became immediately clear that the mist did in fact carry the scent, and little cracks and holes that began spewing water out into the street as the pressure was building spit out enough of that scent that Gizmo was able to move and nearly a run along one of the long streets, only occasionally sniffing at the growing puddles of water being made in the dirt and grass between the houses on the sides of the street. The falcon above them cawed, and Crethen noted the warning. He was limited in the range of his perception, but Berggren was letting him know that the confrontation was coming. If he had been able to see farther, he would have seen the coming end of the row of houses. Safe to assume that would be the end of the water pipes as well. His swords were sheathed, but he took his crossbow in hand. He was pretty sure those knobs and dials didn't mean anything, but he had asked Brockett to set it to Vampire as they were descending the hill earlier that day. While the gnome had been working, he was also explaining that there was no setting for vampires, but there was one for undead, though it didn't need a little more tension and pull than a zombie would. And it was about then that Crethen had stopped listening. That only caused Sprocket to repeat himself, knowing how important this information was, but Crethen failed to pay attention the second time as well. Gizmo had stopped and was indicating toward one of the houses, and Crethen raised his crossbow as he came, slowing down and getting ready to move into the building, Mirella a few yards behind, and Sprocket another few behind that. But Fortosio wasn't going to wait to be trapped inside. The door exploded in splinters just mere feet ahead of Crethen as the vampire burst out, an inhuman war cry on its lips. The blind hunter instinctively raised his hands to protect his face from the splintering door, though obviously he had not eyes to hurt, and in the motion the vampire slammed into him with the force of an actual stone beast, and the two fell into the street entwined. Fortosio wore a long coat, and it was covering its head with it, but immediately the skin on its hands and exposed section of his scalp began to smoke, and the nauseous smell of burning skin filled the air around him. With impossible speed, the vampire was on its feet again, scurrying down the street and into the shadows of the opposite houses. It slid then, letting the momentum help it turn as it came to a stop, holding a ready position on all fours, its teeth bared at its enemies, but it only found pain there as a crossbow bolt and two bullets tore into its cloak as soon as it had stopped. With a bestial yell, it recoiled, backing away, but it had misjudged Crethen's speed too, and the man was on his feet and across the dirt road swiftly, letting his own bolt go in the process. The bolt cut straight through the monster and stuck out the other end, its tip dripping with blood. Crethen grunted and glanced at the crossbow. Maybe there was something to those dials and levers after all. The vampire leaped at him, and again the two went down, but this time Fortosi rolled away from the other two hunters, pulling Crethen over to act as a shield against them. Mirella would not be stayed, however, and she drew out her own narrow blade and dashed in, jumping over the grappling pair while gracefully turning her body into a horizontal twist as she went, her blade coming out in a precise thrust as she began to descend behind the two, the strike expertly coming around Crethen and down into their foe. 
Fortosio had eventually seen what she was doing and tried to pull the blind man farther over, gaining more cover, but it was too late. The blade found its mark in its shoulder. Crethen's body ended up pressed against the sword as it was being withdrawn, but the shot of pain for the vampire was all he needed to escape. He twisted his momentum by swinging his feet backward and around, and in a moment he was on his feet again, dropping his crossbow and drawing out his own blades. In the very moment that he was clear from the vampire, Sprocket's weapons were alight and pops of dust exploded from the vampire's back, wetting its coat in blood. But despite the wounds, Fortosio was keeping close watch over its opponents, and it knew that the three ranged fighters had become one ranged and two melee. It rolled agilely, ending up again in a ready position on all fours, and then it charged forward, changing into the wolf as it went, and it was going straight for Sprocket. Crethen changed to his bow as quickly as he could, but he was late in getting the shot off, but Sprocket was quicker to react. With a tap of the small cylinder on his coat lapel, a great fan of metal whirled out in an abrupt whoosh and began to spin. It rose above the gnome as Sprocket slid down upon his knees, making the move just as the wolf was committing to its jump, and suddenly the vampire couldn't change its momentum anymore, even though it was clear that it would miss its target. The shield sliced between them, Sprocket sliding underneath and Fortosio leaping just above, the whirling metal holding them apart. But as Sprocket continued his own slide, he leaned back and began firing, taking care to aim just on the outside of the shield's radius as he did, fire blasting with clamorous acclaim from the barrels as the rounds tore through the wolf's coat and skin, sending bits of hair and flesh around in a storm. The shield twisted then, still protecting its inventor and forcing the wolf back as soon as it had landed. The vampire was in the sun again, and again the smell of burning flesh filled the air and its fur began to smoke. It tried to cut back to the shadows, but the spinning shield mimicked its movements, its whirling fan cutting threateningly just an inch from its snout. Crethen and Sprocket were pelting it with arrows and bullets respectively, and it was stumbling. It knew it needed to move. It wanted revenge for this attack, and that kept it there, trying to find a way to strike. But it also knew that until the sun fell, the quest for vengeance would likely get it killed. It snarled and growled, then cut up the street again back toward town. The three followed, Gizmo, adding much-needed support in the form of loud barks, following them a dozen yards back. Mirella had left her crossbow behind, but Crethens was still attached, though unloaded, on the leather strap. His bow was humming, and most of the shots were finding their mark. Sprocket, too, was already reloaded and firing again, but the wolf was far faster than the three. It was time to call for help. Crethen whistled and Bergeron dove. A diving falcon is perhaps the fastest thing he had ever witnessed before that very day. But Fortosio would not fall for the same trick twice, and a vampire in wolf form proved to be every bit as quick. As the bird came, it shifted its form to mist at the perfect moment, and the falcon went harmlessly through, cutting its path back upward right away. And just like that, the vampire was a wolf again. Berger and climbed, preparing to dive again, but by now the townspeople, those who were not actively fleeing, and that faction was the greater of the two, were firing arrows as well. Still the vampire came, taking the arrows from front and back both, its powerful legs churning up the ground as it went, and all too soon and barely seeming wounded at all, it was in the air again, and this time its jaws found its mark. 
Constable Odwin Finsberg grunted as the wolf tore into his neck, and the two went down, thudding upon the hard ground, all the weight falling on the man. Odwin was likely dazed, but managed to get his dagger from his belt and was stabbing the wolf repeatedly in the ribs, even as his blood was pouring out and into the vampire's mouth, gurgling out the sides and splattering all around in a wide arc. The vampire's blood was flowing also as stab wound after stab wound was made, and the street was running red. Like an unholy fountain it was, and the people around him recoiled in horror as the stabbing became slower and slower, the strength leaving the man. And then it stopped. Fortosio howled then. Still, at least thirty arrows buried into its body, and Odwin went limp beneath it. As one, the townspeople's horror turned into rage, and they charged in, some now brandishing crosses instead of arrows. But Fortosio puffed suddenly into mist, and the numerous arrows that had been in its skin at once collapsed onto the ground in the center of the throng, clattering over the body of the constable. The vampire reformed a few yards behind them, and now the townspeople were between it and the three. The burns that had developed on his skin were already healing with that meal it just had, and it turned and smirked at the people, then hurried into one of the nearby houses. Fifteen. Grethen's crossbow was reloaded before he entered, but when he went into that front room, his focus was more on Gizmo than anything. The dog certainly had a nose for the vampire, and frankly the man trusted that nose more than his own eyes, or lack thereof, at that moment. But the dog was indicating farther in, so Grethen moved forward a bit more quickly than he would have normally. As long as Gizmo had an idea of where the thing was, he could move a bit faster, so Crethen was through the front room in a moment and into the second. Fortosio, he said breathlessly, he was getting his wind back, but it had been an intense few minutes there, and the adrenaline was pumping as much as his heart was. Mirella was completely silent behind him, her sword at the ready. Her crossbow was 300 yards down the street, and it was too cramped for her to use Crethen's bow. Sprocket was guarding the rear, his weapons out in both hands and pointed ahead. Hello, the gnome said loudly. When there was no answer, he said, We know you're here, and there isn't anywhere you can go, so why don't you just give up? We'll go easy on you, promise. We won't roast you out in the sun or anything like that. Sun's probably too low for that anyway. Muffled squeak. It was coming from the basement. Crethen cursed under his breath. Of course it was the basement, where there would be the least amount of light. He bit his lip and made his way over to the corner ladder. He was cautious, but he didn't have to be. Fortosio wasn't hiding. Once the three saw the vampire, they came downstairs, slowly and without making sudden movements. Their hands still held their weapons, but to their sides and not at the ready. They lined up side by side then, Crethen flanked by his friends, looking at their foe. 
Fortosio was in the opposite corner, in front a large hole in the dirt wall of the basement, a path that disappeared into instant darkness. The vampire's right arm was outstretched, holding its sword back inwards into the neck of a young boy that the three did not know, but whose name was Wasson. Its left hand held tightly around the boy's neck. The boy was gritting its teeth to try to avoid showing his fear, but he was shaking. Crethen looked to the ground without moving his head, a summoning circle and an intricate one at that. Well, that's where the water elemental had come from. He had wondered about that. None of the three were skilled enough in magic to recognize this one, but it had rocks set strategically within it, shaped roughly like some sort of misshapen man. The Stone Beast. Crethen sighed deeply, still trying to steady his breath. Well, that accounted for everything then. This is what the kid and the cistern had told them to look for. It was a little figure made out of rocks in, on the floor of a basement. There was something a little anticlimactic about that, Crethen thought. Portosio, Crethen said, stepping forward. The vampire reacted by bringing the boy closer to himself. Crethen, I think I misread you yesterday. I do not think you are actually opposed to taking me somewhere else. Your objection was my choice of hostage. You told me she was special to you, but I did not listen. But I understand, and I am a forgiving man. You'd be surprised at what my objection is, Crethen replied. Not so. You think me very different from you. But I was once a man too, you know. We vampires are not so far removed. In strength and power, yes, but in love, not so much. Maybe one day you will understand. Let the child go. No, you'll see, the child will come with us. Your woman will be safe. Take me away from here. You may leave her here and come back for her later. I do not need revenge. I do not hold grudges. I just want to be away from here. You understand. Oh, we'll take you out for sure, Crethen said. <laughs> no, no, said the creature, its fangs still having a red sheen on them. Only one has died today. Do not make it more. Your woman will be safe. Isn't that what you want? Crethen grinned. She has yet to need my protection, despite my continued offering it to her. I doubt she needs it today. This is your last chance. Time is running out. We have plenty of time. I'm not tired at all. <laughs> you don't understand. As if on cue, the house rocked to the side violently, like it had just been hit with a massive boulder. Not as much shaking the place, as much as smacking it with an incredible force. Even in the basement, the ground seemed to jerk from under them, and all parties had to steady themselves. But Wasson took the opportunity, as Fortosio's grip lessened, to bite the vampire on the fleshy part of his hand that webbed between his thumb and finger, and he bit with such ferocity that it squirted blood. It was a minor wound compared to so many others, but it was enough to startle the vampire, and Wasson was able to duck just long enough for Sprocket's weapon to flash upward, ablaze in flashes of light and sound. Fordosio fell backward at the blow, and the boy scurried away. Crethen jumped forward as quickly as he could, but he had been off balance because of the shaking, and Fortosio was faster on its feet. 
Without even a look toward his attackers, it rushed into the hole in the wall and disappeared into the darkness. 16. Crethen was three steps behind him when the ground shook again, this time more violently, and the earthen walls of the basement began to shudder and break, dust instantly filling the air as the structure began to buckle under the pressure. Mirella tried to move forward too as the cloud engulfed Crethen before them, but Sprocket grabbed her by the waist and pulled her back, keeping her just a foot away from the collapsing wooden beam that fell from its supporting place and right into their path. The far side of the basement folded then, the wall coming down upon itself, swallowing the tunnel and debris, the crash deafening as a whole section of the house buckled under the pressure and became undone in a heap right in front of the two hunters. It settled then, leaving the two there safe with the boy, but Mirella yelled out, Crethen! Crethen! and started forward again to see what could be done about the mouth of the tunnel. She didn't get far when they heard a sharp scream from outside, followed by a loud gasp and commotion. Sprocket went to the slit windows of the basement, trying to look out from his diminutive position, but all he saw was a churning of dirt and a growing cloud engulfing the area. Come on, he cried and hurried up the ladder. The back part of the house was broken, collapsed into the hole behind them, the wall literally torn into pieces, most of which was on the ground now. Part of the roof had also fallen, and so even from this spot from within the house, they were able to see the graveyard right behind them, or at least what was left of it. Sprocket stopped, his eyes wide in horror, and as Morella came, she started to ask what was happening, but the truth of it rose up before her eyes in a horrible vision of death and inhuman terror of the thing forming itself before them. The beast was rising literally from the very earth and of the very earth, tearing apart the graveyard as it came, seeming to absorb the breaking rubble in its movement. It started in the old area of the graveyard, but the fissures it was causing were dancing over the hallowed ground in massive crevices. Mirella wasn't breathing. It was 50 feet tall at least, its huge form toppling trees just by bumping them, its wolf-like head thrashing about as though it were knocking off bounds that had been holding it down before this moment, dirt and mud coming off of it at every moment. It stood up on all fours, but its body was not sleek like a wolf, but rather bulky and muscular. Its tail was like a tree trunk, and at its swing did entire houses break apart. But the terror was not its size or strength, but what it was. Like the water snake, it was taking its form from its elemental source nearby, but this was made of stone, and it was taking its form from the stone nearby. Tombstones, sarcophagi, pillars, beers, monuments, and obelisks. It was building its form from the remembrances of the dead in the graveyard, and in the pulling of stone it was pulling the bodies with it, and the skeletal remains of the old town were hanging from its cobbled form and being tossed about the yard like ragdolls. Stone beast, Mirella remembered suddenly, not sure what she had expected from that particular prophecy but knowing that it wasn't this. Please join us next week for more of The Hallowing of Ground. The Hallowing of Ground was written and read by me, Paul Lytle. 
Copyright 2019. All music in the episode was composed by me and performed by the Techno Funk Boy. You can find links to my Discord server and Patreon in the episode description. Paul Lytle's Perilous Realms is a Play Well Network podcast. <laughs>